Good afternoon uh, from London uh, and welcome to the event uh, organized by the Hellenic Observatory and the London School of Economics. My name is uh, Spiros Economides and I am the Deputy Director of the Hellenic Observatory here uh, in uh, the LSE. We are here uh, this afternoon uh, to uh, introduce, uh, celebrate, uh, and uh, introduce, celebrate, and launch uh, the book that uh, is known as the Oxford Handbook of Modern Greek Politics, uh, which is a groundbreaking volume comprising of 43 chapters dealing with a wide range of issues which comprise the politics of modern Greece. And modern Greece, in this case, is not just the last 10 years, but is historically rooted, dealing with a wide variety of institutions, policies, personalities, uh, processes, and other issues. To help us uh, celebrate launch this book, uh, of course, we have the two editors of the volume, uh, Professor Kevin Featherstone, who is Eleferios Venizelos Professor in Contemporary Greek Studies, and Professor in European Politics here in the European Institute at the London School of Economics, and he's also the Director of the Hellenic Observatory. And in Athens, we have Dimitris Sotiropoulos, who is Professor of Political Science at the Department of Political Science and Public Administration of the University of Athens. Alongside the two uh, editors of the volume, we have three eminent Europeanists who are going to act as discussants and introduce various aspects of the book itself to our audience today. So to help us along today as discussants, uh, we have uh, Kalipso Nikolaidis, who is Professorial Chair in Transnational Governance at the EUI School of Transnational Governance in Florence. And she's currently on leave from the University of Oxford, where she's been a Professor of International Relations. We have Bridget Laffan, who is Director and Professor at the Robert Schumann Center for Advanced Studies at the EUI, the European University Institute in Florence. And we have George Tsebelis, who is the Anatole Rappaport Collegiate Professor of Political Science at the University of Michigan. If you wish to tweet during the proceedings, the hashtag is LSE Greece. You, of course, as members of the audience, are our most important figures in today's launch, and you will have ample opportunity to ask our panelists questions uh, at the end of their presentations. And to do so, we will invite you to use the Q&A function available to you on your screen to identify yourselves by name and provide an affiliation so that we know who you are and where you are, and we can put your questions uh, to the audience. This uh, launch is uh, being recorded and will be available later as a podcast on the Hellenic Observatory website. And of course, there is a, a, a stream live on Facebook as we speak. Before I um, ask our discussants to say uh, their uh, word on uh, what they found interesting or not about the book, please let me hand you over to my friend and colleague, Kevin Featherstone, who wants to say a few uh, preliminary words uh, about the book itself. Kevin. Thank you, Spiro, and hello, everyone. And my thanks to my co-panelists for joining us from uh, different locations. I thought it would help at the outset if I just said very briefly something about the motivations and purpose of the volume. Um, I should also say that uh, the idea, the original idea of producing this volume uh, came from my distinguished co-editor, the Richard Sotiropoulos in Athens. 
but he uh, persuaded me that this was a good idea. Uh, he persuaded me this was a good idea before we realized the time investment that would be necessary in editing a volume of some 43 uh, chapters. Uh, but the motivation, I think, was well-grounded. We wanted to fill a gap. Dimitris uh, pointed out that there was uh, no single reference source on uh, modern Greek politics in any language, uh, which gave an authoritative uh, guide. So we hope to be comprehensive in scope, and we have sections which cover political institutions, political parties, interest groups, policymaking, external relations, and political leaders. Our focus is primarily the period uh, of the Metabolistefsi uh, since 1974 uh, to the uh, present. But it is not a chronological uh, history. Instead, it aims to be a reflective set of essays giving commentary and analysis on the developmental path that Greece has uh, followed in this period, identifying themes of continuity and uh, change. And we were fortunate to have uh, contributions from many leading uh, specialists, uh, giving, we think, an authoritative introduction uh, to their particular uh, subjects. As Spiros has mentioned, there are some 43 uh, chapters. Given the eminence of our contributors, of course, uh, we could not um, propose a single uh, standpoint or, or a single position uh, on Greece's development. There is no uh, single argument uh, running through 43 uh, chapters. Instead, we are ecumenical in different interpretations of uh, recent uh, Greek political uh, history. We also wanted to combine the empirical and the conceptual on the basis that uh, by being so, we could facilitate international comparison, avoiding perhaps easy or complacent references uh, to Greek exceptionalism. We wanted to facilitate uh, locating Greece in a wider uh, perspective. So overall, our purpose was twofold, to help the foreign reader uh, identify and compare Greece, to answer a question, what kind of case is Greece in different uh, subject or issue areas? And secondly, to offer a high quality reference volume uh, for readers in Greece itself. That's the, that was the ambition, and obviously the discussion today will um, seek to evaluate how far the purpose has been uh, delivered. But again, let me thank our panellists, and I look forward to their contributions and the issues they wish to raise. Spiro. Uh, thank you very much, Kevin, for that introduction. Can I immediately hand over now to Calypso Nicolaidis uh, to hear what she has to say uh, about her reading of the volume. Calypso, over to you. Spiros, friends, I'm truly honored to be given the opportunity to praise this unique, as Kevin just explained, groundbreaking handbook. And not only because its two editors and many of its eminent authors are longtime friends or colleagues, and its publishers is Oxford University Press, um, but 
Let me just say that because we're forced to discuss it in this frustratingly un-Greek, inhospitable way, that is Zoom, I thought uh, to lighten up a bit the atmosphere by starting by reminding you of the story, remember, of the surgeon, the architect, and the economist battling it out as to who is the oldest profession. So he, remember the surgeon says, we are the oldest profession. We carved Eve out of Adam's rib. The architect pushes back. Well, no, we are the ones who ate way earlier designed order out of chaos. But then this is where the economists exclaim, but who do you think created chaos in the first place? That's where you don't tell jokes on Zoom because you don't know if anybody's chuckling out there. But the reason I wanted to tell this little story is, well, yes, chaos. You know, Europe's poly crisis that we're still into starts with Greece's poly, poly crisis, reflected and amplified by Greece. Um, so we are chaos, aren't we? I mean, Greece is. But, but this handbook represents a temple of scholarship that does bring order to chaos in 43 rigorously erected pillars. Um, and, and so as discussant slash surgeant, I'm going back in the professions, uh, who are asked to carve out a minuscule rib from this enormous body of scholarship, I thought, well, what am I gonna do? <laughs> Uh, so let me address you directly. Yes, yes, you, the potential reader out there who may be, you know, slightly worried about getting lost in this huge temple. I mean, I've got to show because you guys haven't showed it, you know, physically. Uh, it, it, it is an amazing sum. Um, and so to reassure you that you'll find Ariadne's threads in these pages, even if through many meanders, now, let me give you two threads, Spiros, if you allow me. So thread one. So maybe you're tempted to buy this book because you've long been fascinated or angered or simply bewildered by this Greek exceptionalism that Kevin just alluded to. How special is this contemporary country that cannot be given its own handbook without the adjective modern attached to it. And I say this as an Oxfordian where I think we have the highest number of uh, ancient Greek tutors in our colleges uh, attended by many wonderful students. Uh, so so my, my point to you, dear reader, is that you'll find three tantalizing, contrasting, but complementary flavors in this book on this thread one question. One, of course, Kevin is in, in his introduction, starts us off with Greece's wealth, exceptional vulnerability. And many of the chapters, and I, I only dipped, it's, it's impossible so quickly to read all of them, but these chapters often ponder, of course, about Greece's distinctiveness. But two, the handbook is a serious, serious piece of social science wedded to a systematic and wide-ranging comparative approach. Kevin just said it. So, you know, Greek capitalism is another Southern European model that over and under protects its society. You know, or semi-periphery like Latin Americans or the Greek state of variant that is changing of the post-Ottoman Balkans, Greek political uh, system um, likes bereft of partitocracy 
explain in great detail uh, of the states to the east, Greek foreign policy reluctantly Europeanized like other countries at the EU's margin and Greek leaders like everywhere else, much more banal than their followers believe. In all of these ways, you know, Greece is just a variant on other countries. Um, and in fact, the claim to exceptionalism is, is, is banally unexceptional. In each of our countries, all complex and conflicted societies have their own you know, proud traditions and contradictions. And, and, and normatively, prescriptively, I read the book as interested in whether Greece can chart a course beyond exceptionalism, overthrowing the deleterious complementarity that the book outlines. But yet, nevertheless, that's the third tone of this, this thread of Ariadne. The reader cannot help but feel that this is there is there with Greece a unique combination of all these shared traits uh, where the Greek exception, the Greek drama lies. You know, what kind of animal is bred by the combination of the Napoleonic civil code and the Balkans rentier state? A society is sustained both by victimhood and concurring narrative, uh, where we witness both the biggest protest anywhere, but the greatest fatalism to an equal measure. Uh, so, and, and so the book is as much about contrast, uh, like with Sweden and the US as about similarities. So it's true in the end, there is an ex exceptionalism in the potential and the limits for reform, or I, I prefer to say transformation, uh, which really lie in this unique set of Greek problems and potentials that are explored brilliantly in these pages. So that's for the first thread. And very quickly, the thread two, well, Kevin just mentioned, you, you may ask this reader, well, it, 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 is this story really about change or about continuity? And here I give you the same three points, you know, change you bet. You know, clearly, uh, Dimitri and Kevin and, and all of the authors were motivated to conceive and, and write this amazing book by, you know, the tremendous upheaval that has beset Greece for the last decade. Uh, and which has led the whole world to put Greece under its a microscope. Um, so we're told in the book about its, how its political system has imploded while its debt exploded. Its state system has been upended while its society and economy have been hollowed out. Yes, change you bet. But two, most if not all of the contributors set out to explain to the reader, no, 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 you see, don't be surprised by what happened. We've had these traits all along. It's in our Greek DNA, the bloated state, the dual society, the fragile economy, the deleterious impact of clientelism, the persistence of social cleavages, the deep inequalities, abysmal levels of trust, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and throughout all of this, biggest continuity for us Europeans, the, the Greeks have remained amazingly loyal to the EU, just like you know, most of Italy and Spain. But yet three, third moment, um, there is nevertheless an undercurrent about change in this handbook, in this sum, which after all is published at the eve of the 200th anniversary of the revolution. Um, because all of these structural realities that we, that, that we observe and are, are, are dis, uh, disconstructed in the book 
you know, are, are at the end of the day, but static markers present at the moment when Greece started its journey into modernity, bereft of the developmental trajectory of most of its European neighbors, yes. But there, there is no reason why young Greeks in particular, you know, kids or students, cannot lay claim to the agency that they so crave, whether at home or in the diaspora. So, so at, at the end of the book, for me, the message of the book is also that Greece's destiny is in constant state of flux. And as even The Economist last week acknowledges, the state has indeed incrementally been reformed. Young Greeks are ahead of most in riding the digital trans transition of our world and of Europe. And yes, we will finally implement the great renewable project that, that, that Greece deserves. Yes, there is change, albeit incremental. So yes, reader, I haven't given you a, a straightforward answer to only two of the many questions you may ask about exceptionalism and, and change or continuity. Uh, but now Kevin and Dimitri, uh, allow me just one more, to end on one more, a bit more personal note. You know, as, as Greek scholars or half Greek scholars abroad, we seem to always be considered as Greek ambassadors, you know, asked to account for our home country, even if it was never our home. Um, so, and even if we're not scholars of Greece, somehow we oblige, perhaps because uh, many of us want to contribute to making good on the promise. And so this is how I find myself, for instance, with brilliant accomplices, you know, bringing Greek programs to my host institutions in the last three decades and repeatedly having to provide improvised, improvised answers to questions I was myself asking. I am not a scholar of Greece. Well, Kevin, Dimitri, wonderful authors, I feel relieved, relieved that finally, I now have the absolute right answer at the tip of my fingers or of my shelf, Bridget, now at EUI. Read this book. Let your curiosity explore this vast intellectual space and you are sure to find your answer. Or even better, multifaceted lens to continue to dare explore this fascinating landscape. Read this book. Thank you. Calypso, thank you very much indeed. Uh, let's uh, move uh, swiftly along to our other panelists from Florence, uh, Bridget Lafan. Uh, so good afternoon, everyone. And uh, can I begin by thanking you for inviting me to be part of this panel? I'm not Greek, not half Greek, and uh, I'm not sure I would have engaged with the volume had I not been asked to do this. And for that, I'm very grateful. But uh, congratulations to, to both Kevin and Dimitri, because it was an extraordinary work to bring this together, to amass the scholarship uh, to get to get it between the two hard covers that we have here, uh, and I also think we should thank or uh, appreciate Oxford University Press for producing handbooks on countries that are not the usual suspects, not the large countries. I think that really matters. That uh, Oxford is prepared, and I have just copy edited my contribution 
to the handbook on Irish politics. And I was amazed when someone said to me, Oxford would publish a handbook on Irish politics. So I think we should also appreciate Oxford University Press in terms of its willingness and openness to produce beyond the large, the usual, uh, usual suspects. So there's an invitation in the opening chapter to comparison, what is Greece a case of? And as I read it, I kept running through my mind all of the time was, where does Ireland lie on this? Because obviously that's the country I know best. And I think there are really interesting similarities between these two states, but very different outcomes and out, uh, products of, of that modernization process. So the similarities, uh, both are the product of state-seeking nationalisms, both were born of war and insurgency, both are peripheral, peripheral in their empires and on their continents, both poor, uh, in the 1950s, when the modelling talks uh, began in mid-1950s on a European-wide free trade area, Ireland, Greece, Turkey and Portugal banded together to say, well, whatever happens the rest of Europe, we're not ready for free trade. There we are exceptional because of our poverty. Both states have endured uh, economic crises. Both have had volatility, stop-start, uh, and most recently in the Eurozone. And both states are, were or are early late modernizers because although the Irish state was founded a hundred years after, the, not quite a hundred years after the Greek state, but a long time after, the modernization of the Irish state, uh, of the Irish political system began in the 19th century pre-independence. Uh, pre so then I was wondering what are the differences uh, between these two poor peripheral peripheral states. And I thought the Chikalivas' chapter on the trajectory of the Greek state is absolutely marvellous. I learned so much from it. And there he tries to reconcile what he calls Greece's significant successes and devastating failures. And he talks of the debt, the default, the external uh, dependence. Uh, but he also says uh, we have to reconcile this with Greece's successes. And I think that's also very important because remember that that poor uh, post-colonial state, 19th century state, survived several dictatorships, survived Nazism, survived major economic crises. And its democracy in the most recent crisis has proved very resilient. So there is a resilience there that's been shown across time, despite all of the vulnerabilities that are there. But then uh, in the early chapters, there's also a lot of uses of indices that say Greece is in the top 40 in the world. So I took a look, a comparative look at some of those indices between Greece and Ireland. And so ease of doing business, Ireland's about 24, Greece 79. Globalization, Ireland 4, Greece 27. Uh, human development, Ireland 2, Greece 32. And this, the one that surprised me most, but a lot of these indices, of course, are, are questionable, the happiness index. Ireland 12 and Greece 82nd. Now, how anyone would be happier to live in Ireland in that rain-soaked Atlantic island rather than in beautiful Greece, I don't know. But what comes through, and, and for me, the most important difference is uh, 
globalization because I looked at exports as a proportion of GDP as both countries joined the EU. So when Ireland joined 1973, 1972, it exported 30% of its gross product. In 2019, it exported 126%. In other words, one of the most globalized states in the world, whereas Greece exported 21% of its gross product in 81 and 37 in 2019. And that's a major difference between these two peripheral states in that, in that period. And so for me, a big question is the use of Europe and membership by Greece. And Greece had a stellar economic performance in the association agreement period right up to membership far surpassed Ireland in terms of growth rate convergence, growth rates of 7.5% a year, really rapid convergence. And that falls away post-membership. So again, when I look at the chapters, the chapters on Kevin Europeanization, uh, Sukalis on the successes and failures of of Greek um, membership of the EU, What strikes me is there's a theme of maladjustment, uneven adaptation across sectors. There's unevenness, it comes across in all of these chapters. But also when when, when the claims of Greece's successes in the EU are firstly the persuasive capacity to join the EU against and the only country that ever joined the EU with a negative commission opinion. That was an enormous achievement of Greek diplomacy to become a member state. Equally, the IMP in the early early, uh, 1980s, and then EMU against all the odds. So the Greek successes are the strategic purpose that Greece has shown in joining EU frames, the important joining achieving membership, and then joining the core policy areas. But where the, where, where the problems are, at least from reading the book, that this is one big takeaway from, for me from the book, is that there's the contradiction between the desire to be at the core and then the capacity to live with the core, or the desire to be in the game, but not adjust to the demands of internationalization. And so for me, the the big question is, why did Greece not make the next step change on achieving membership, when it achieved membership, with all of the benefits of an inflow of investment potential through structural funds? Why was it that um, that step was not taken to, to learn to live with the consequences of what were Greek choices, because it was a Greek desire to join EMU and, and join the EU in the first place. In other words, that, that, that the dualism that runs through that, that issue about the traditionalists and the modernists, the cultural dualism. And so when, when, I, when I, I see this, I think that there are, for me, probably four or five very big differences between Ireland and Greece. 
The first uh, comes across Kalivas uh, in that chapter when he said, there's a feeling of lacking agency, that lacking agency has become part of the Greek identity. The feeling that the outsider will eventually step in and correct uh, Greece's mistakes, that that is part of the, the, the external engagement, the rescue from the outside has been a persistent theme. Now that strikes me as simply not part of the political or state culture of Ireland. We never expect anyone to turn up and rescue the country from anything. Whenever Ireland tried historically, the Spaniards, the French, the Germans, they either turned up too late with not much firepower and the British just kicked them back into the sea. So there is no desire, there is no sense in Ireland that anyone will come and rescue the state. The second, I think, is clearly the nature of the developmental state. Greece has a much bigger state in gross product terms than Ireland does, uh, and a very active and interventionist state, that Mediterranean state capitalism. Uh, but the developmental state, it is described in the volume as weak and incomplete, but it's also interventionist, but interventionist in ways that, uh, for example, under Passoff in the early 80s, taking over uh, companies that had collapsed or were in trouble because of competition. Whereas the Irish development state is very different. It's a set of institutions that are designed to attract foreign investment, promote enterprise and promote experts, exports. So it's a very much, uh, it's a liberal market economy, but with social partnership. So very different political economy. The administrative and governing state is very different. Uh, I think Ireland probably benefited enormously from the fact that its colonizer was the UK, so it inherited a functioning Weberian. It, it didn't inherit a functioning Weberian state, but it had the traditions to create a Weberian state uh, in terms of uh, cabinet coordination and all of the things, and of course the common law, uh, the common law uh, system. Uh, as well. And so, whereas it, I read from the volume very much the public politicized public administration, the rent seeking, and the weakness of uh, state capacity. So I think there's a lot, uh, there's a lot in the, um, in the uh, explanation of the differences uh, between uh, the two uh, trajectories of the two states. But let me simply finish with Greece 2.0, because of course, there is now the prospect of the RRF uh, and I, uh, the uh, School of Transnational Governance, I participated in an executive training at the, this week on the RRF. And uh, there was a very senior Greek official presented the Greek program and talked of 62 reform projects so reform is lie is is that reform that runs through the volume it is alive and well, and there's one uh, sentence in the book that Kevin I think you're probably responsible for, and one thing said by the senior Greek official that I think should worry us. So firstly, Kevin argues that breaking the domestic logjam still appears most likely with the appropriate external intervention and support. Domestic reform leaders need external support. Well, in my view, that's not what Greece should aim for. I think 
It's a mature polity. It has the human capital and resources to take its destiny into its own hands. And in my view, the less external intervention in the next phase of the Greek state, the better. Uh, In other words, take take the interdependence that's now now there. But uh, on the 62 reform projects, the senior Greek official defined reform projects as that those areas that do not cost. In other words, it's institutional uh, change, legal change. But what worried me was the idea that reform is cost-free. And I think he used the phrase cost-free because successful reform is resource-hungry. It requires extraordinary resources of human, of time and energy and experimentation and working through to deliver reform. So again, uh, I just hope that uh, the 62 reform projects, uh, also it's too many. It's much better to decide what are the top five that are the most essential and you put all your human capital uh, behind that. But I, I leave it there. I And I should also, before ending, say I am not trying to argue in any way that that small Atlantic island is nirvana. It has enormous challenges. But it's just I'm very struck by the similarities with which these two peripheral states started out. And uh, they have come to different places. And for me, the biggest difference between the two remains that Ireland learned to live with internationalization. Thank you. Bridget, thank you very much indeed. Uh, now let's move on to across the Atlantic to uh, George Sebelis, who is going to say a few words of his own on his reading of the book. Uh, good morning, uh, given that I am in another side of the Atlantic. And uh, I thank very much uh, Kevin and Dimitri for inviting me in this uh, uh, enterprise. And uh, I want to to discuss the intellectual uh, merit of the project uh, that I find uh, impressive. And uh, when people um, discuss uh, comparative politics, essentially they take a theory uh, that connects to different variables, as you can see, variable X and variable Y, Let's think about Diverger, he connects the electoral system and the party system of a country. And then uh, they try to say whether Greece fits this pattern. And usually uh, Greece does not come out on this straight line in most researchers. Uh, It comes out like that, like an exception. Uh, The reason is uh, endogenous. Uh, You are not going to write about something that fits exactly what everybody else has explained already. You are going to take the country that you know best and you are going to say, well, it does not fit the pattern. Uh, And then we are going to have the Greek exceptionalism and depends what we are going to do with it. Uh, Maybe we are going to do uh, what uh, uh, Calypso said, that uh, it was the first country that entered the crisis, and uh, then uh, everybody else uh, entered the crisis. And uh, essentially, we are going to explain, 
like Mazauer does, that uh, the, um, oh, let me, sorry, let me share it this way. Uh, we are going to show that other countries are going to come exactly in the same pattern as Greece. Uh, and uh, this way, uh, Greece is going to be a precursor or a model of everything else that is happening in other countries. Uh, <clears throat> that is one way of thinking about it. The more interesting way which the book adopts is uh, taking Greece and replacing the word, the dummy variable, Greece, by a specific variable and say that the reason that this thing is happening in Greece is X, Y, Z. And that is, for example, what uh, Featherstone and Pavel Dimitriou are arguing to fully address concerns of Greek exceptionalism. The focus on Athens needs to be brought into comparative analysis with empirical depth. Okay, so essentially we are speaking about one country, but then we are trying to see how does it compare with the other ones. Once we are able to do that, then uh, we will have a more general theory that involves the new variable that we have introduced. And then we will be able to compare this, what is happening in Greece with what is happening in other countries. I'm going to use an example, <clears throat> go back to the pattern of the Greek exceptionalism and use an example that is doing this really in a very successful uh, way. The ones of you who are reading about Greek uh, politics and policy will know that Vulgaris, for example, tried to see whether Greece matches the modernization theory and the Marxism theory, and he finds out that it is no, it is an exception. And uh, therefore, he says what is characteristic of Greece is the simultaneous evolution, uh, uh, creation of democracy and the state in Greece. And so this is the new variable that then somebody will have to start thinking what other countries have this feature that when they create the state, it is in an undiversified uh, political body. And another country that would come to mind would be the United States. And then a theory would develop trying to find out similarities between Greece and the United States because they share this feature. Let's go now to the book and let's see, for example, Alivizatos in his chapter and Gerabetridis in the chapter on parliament argue that Greece is a Westminster model of democracy and that nobody who is Greek is going to debate. And uh, it is an accurate uh, assessment that if we want to understand how pol Greek politics works, we have to look at England much more than at Germany or at uh, Denmark or, or Sweden. Well, if we try to think about what is the theory around that, we have to go to the diverse story that says proportional electoral system and multi-parties, on the one hand, uh, go with a multi-party government 
But here we have a single party government. We have proportional electoral system, reinforced electoral, uh, proportional and multipartism, uh, but we have a single party government. So it is an exceptional feature, which is exactly what this picture shows and which is exactly what DINAS is reporting. The party system, despite the presence of small parties, kept the key characteristics of two parties. Okay? So, in this sense, it is multipartism, but it is two parties. And then Dinas goes to the next step and he says that the electoral system that tried to marry proportional representation with single party majority governments. And this is the characteristic of Greece, which is an exception to the diverge approach. And on the other hand, shows the brilliance of the Greek electoral system, which whether it is through the bonus that it provides to the first party, or whether it was in the past by the third tier of distribution, creates single party governments, even though we have a proportional electoral system and we have a multi-party system throughout the period. Okay, so this comes to the conclusion that it's not the party system. It is the government that is the most important characteristic. And what matters is whether it is a coalition or not. In the times that Greece has been in a coalition government, whether it was Samaras Venizelos or Tsipras uh, Kamenos, uh, the way that the country was run was significantly different from all the rest of the period. So this is a conclusion that comes out of the Greek exceptionalism, which we try to understand it in a comparative perspective. Another one, let's go back to the Greek exceptionalism. Uh, Hlepas is using this picture in order to understand the local government, the subnational democracy, the structure and the functions of the um, subnational system. Then let's go back to the system and let's look at the article that Gerapetridis wrote about the parliament. And on the one hand, he describes how the Greek electoral system and the, the Greek political system is a parliamentary system. And on the other, he comes to the conclusion after a very detailed uh, analysis that the reversal of original constitutional theorem insofar as government has taken the lead in the struggle for political prevalence and the parliament seems to, have, seems to have deferred to it, okay? So we call it the parliamentary system, but it is the government and the prime minister, to go back to the Kevin article, that are in charge, okay? That is, again, something that is surprising, but if we think about it, it is the rule. It's not an exception. Okay, let's think about it. Let's think about countries and the legislative L in the picture and the executive E in the picture. And they need to agree in order to have any particular piece of legislation. 
and let's assume that the status quo is where I show it, SQ, then if the legislature and the executive are willing to do the things that they prefer, the shaded area is what can happen. Okay, these are the things that they both agree that they prefer over the status quo. However, if the legislative makes a proposal to the executive, then it will make the proposal PL because it is closer to it. And if the executive makes the proposal to the legislative, then it will make the proposal PE because it is closer to it. As a result, we are going to have very different outcomes if the legislative makes a proposal to the executive or the other way around. Well, in parliamentary systems, it is the executive that makes a proposal to the parliament. So the outcome will be PE, closer to what the executive was once, which is what all the Greek analysis say, that the government does what it wants. If it is a presidential system, it is the legislature that makes a proposal to the executive. And the executive says yes or no, vetoes it. Okay? And therefore, the president of the United States has been complaining that he doesn't have line item veto. So this is the conclusion of this analysis. Greek is, Greece is not the exception. The conclusion is that the constitutional theorem that Gerabetritis is talking about has the names wrong. We always think of parliamentary systems as the parliament does whatever it wants legislatively, and that's not the case. It is the government. And we are thinking about presidential systems as the president does everything he wants. And that's not the case. It is the Congress. So looking at the Greek reality is going to give us a better understanding of more general phenomena. That is the most important thing that this book is going to do. And I am delighted that now we have this reference uh, point that everybody is going to be looking at and not read from cover to cover, but on the other hand, go back to it every time that he finds a substantive issue and wants to find out how it works in Greece. And let me tell you, <clears throat> recently I have been working on electoral systems because I have been advertising a, a approval uh, voting system for Greece and for the European countries. And I went in a, uh, in a very important article and it was speaking, going from theory to practice, the mixed success of approval voting. And what they are saying is that they find the approval voting in the 19th century United Kingdom, in Eastern Europe and in the Soviet Union, and they are not talking about the fact that Greece had this electoral system from 1864 to 1920. And they are not talking about the fact that this system was introduced in Greece, in ancient Sparta. That's how they were electing the Senate. So obviously these are not 
pieces that would be included in this book. But this book is going, I hope, open the, the whole world into the inclusion of Greece to any comparative analysis. Uh, George, thank you very much, and thank you to uh, all three of our discussants uh, for their uh, points of view and observations and remarks about uh, the book as a whole and it's the contribution it, it may be making to scholarship on Greece, uh, contemporary Greece and Europe in a, in a com comparative sense. Let me now turn to the two editors of the volume uh, and ask uh, Dimitris Sotiropoulos, please, to, to take the floor uh, and if he wants to make some remarks about his view of the book or respond to any of the discussions, uh, this is the time to do it. Dimitri, over to you. Thank you so much. I wish to thank the organizers and the previous speakers, certainly the contributors of the book and our publishers, and above all, Kevin Featherstone. I will make very few points one on what this uh, handbook stands for, and I will close with thoughts about issues that emerged after the handbook came out. So first, this handbook is a passport of the Greek academic community to the international political and, so and social science community. There are 43, 44 actually, Greek authors, including Kevin, who does not know it yet. The youngest contributor is around 40 years old and the oldest is close to 80 years old. Our contributors have studied and also taught in universities around the world, in Greece, the UK, the USA, Canada, France, and Germany. In addition to their individual international career, they are now included in a collective effort to make Greek political and social science better known abroad. Secondly, this handbook is an invitation. It's an invitation to the Greek academic, academic community to become less introverted and less polarized. We need no more esoteric debates. Among, amongst us, the Greek social scientists. And I think this book offers an opportunity to overcome esoteric debates. Moreover, as uh, the reader will find out, there is a pluralism of theoretical perspective, perspectives which are very different in this book. And in fact, there is a variety of right, center, and left-wing political viewpoints. Third, the handbook is a declaration to the rest of the thriving social science communities in Greece, that political science is now probably on a par with them. Indeed, in the past, law, economics, and history have been and still are very much developed in Greece. Uh, and political science now, I think, is able to also claim that um, it is a field that is very well developed, in, um, in my country. And that is a long process that started with the oldest contributors to our volume, and it is now going on. There is a critical mass of Greek academics who are political scientists, but of course, Greek politics cannot be understood as it is evident only through the perspective of political science. This is why in this handbook we have representatives, actually um, the best representatives from other fields, including law, economics, and history. The uh, handbook is also a guide to non-Greek audiences. Uh, it is an invitation to them as well to think about Greece 
in a comparative perspective and also outside the narrow lens imposed by the economic crisis on some foreign and Greek analysts in the previous decade. Despite the miseries which, with which people associate Greece, there is in this country a strong European-like and actually interesting Greek democracy. There was such a democracy before the crisis and miraculously there is such a strong European-like and interesting democracy after the crisis. The handbook explains why without pushing enduring prob problems under the carpet. Now, in the last part of my comments, um, I would like to say that the handbook ends the analysis roughly at the year 2019. This was before the COVID-19 pandemic. However, exactly because of this reason, the handbook can serve as a basis on which to register changes after 2019. A few such changes come to mind. First of all, the achieved consensus between government and opposition for most of the last year, 2020. Second, the integration of evidence-based policymaking in a scale larger than before when it came to crucial decisions about the public health crisis. Third, the proactive, rather than reactive formulation of policies in a number of policy areas. Then, prior to last, the inability of some opposition parties to put together a narrative relevant to this rather than to the previous decade. And finally, the relatively high trust towards the government at levels higher than before and for a longer time span compared to the past. And that means that while we are now two years after the last national elections, there is a discrepancy which we see in surveys between, on the one hand, relatively high trust towards the government and the usual low trust towards other political institutions. Of course, after 2019, there was not only change, there was also continuities and um, this despite the challenges posed by the pandemic. In Greece today, one may think of the following trends, which are reminiscent of very old problems. There is fierce political rhetoric in the parliament as if we were in a constant period of elections and there are weekly street protests which have become inconsequential. Then there is a propensity to consider the fight against corruption as an issue of lower priority in democracy or as a tool to delegitimize one or the other party. Then there is a loose stance on law implementation, a looseness which characterizes not only citizens, but sometimes the government as well. Finally, there is a false perception that there is ample time to find solutions for worsening problems, such as the always looming pension crisis and the destruction of the natural environment. But all these and more are for, the, for the, editors, the editors of future handbooks to analyze. Thank you. Dimitri, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Kevin, over to you. Let me also thank the panelists for their very interesting comments. And of course, uh, in many cases, over generous uh, comments. Uh, it's always a challenge to try to pick up themes, but let me endeavour to do so. 
Uh, I very much like George's point about uh, using Greece as a test case for wider hypotheses, uh, testing uh, Greek exceptionalism. And I would say on a personal basis, Calypso had mentioned earlier, but uh, speaking personally, um, I guess I've often been struck by the what I would call the intellectual protectionism uh, of uh, some Greek academics in the past uh, with recourse to ex uh, answers of exceptionalism. It's like that because of endogenous factors, etc., uh, etc. Et and as an outsider, I, I think I've been more often um, uh, impressed by the lack of exceptionalism. That is, that a number of uh, comparative politics themes, as George has indicated, actually are confirmed uh, by the Greek case, whether it's um, cabinet parliamentary relations, uh, the type of electoral system, uh, or whatever. Uh, so certainly a core motivation has been to address this point of uh, Greek exceptionalism. Of course, as uh, I think Calypso was mentioning, every country, fortunately, can claim an exceptionalism, uh, endogenous features which uh, distinguish them. And when it comes to questions of identity, the role of the church, the sense of Greekness, then of course we're in a terrain which is uh, historically uh, specific. But in many of the wider systemic matters, uh, I think George put it very, very well, that uh, Greece should be used as a test case for wider uh, comparative politics uh, hypotheses. Uh, Bridget, of course, challenged us to think in terms of uh, why Greece didn't develop differently or uh, the contrast with the Irish case, which I think is intriguing. And in the past, I think I've had half conversations with Bridget on this, but not, not fully pursuing the matter. And I, uh, she reminded me that we should have pursued these uh, discussions much more. I think I would uh, place more emphasis than perhaps Bridget, uh, Bridget did on the notion that uh, Greece had a society before a state, society bef a sense of uh, society before the establishment of state institutions. The Irish case is, of course, different, but there were functioning bureaucratic institutions. And the Greek case is uh, something of a contrast with that. You could draw a contrast between Greece and Sweden in that respect uh, as well. Um, I, a while ago, read a very interesting uh, bilateral comparison by Papa Kostas, uh, precisely on the contrast between Greece and Sweden uh, and the onset of parliamentarism uh, in a situation where uh, society... Uh, was stronger than uh, the state. McDowell talks about a strong society and weak state, and I think that is uh, getting pretty close to uh, being able to identify something very core uh, in the Greek um, matter. Uh, but also, I think um, I would just very briefly uh, respond to Bridget by saying something, picking up her theme of varieties of capitalism. Uh, for very good contrasting reasons with Ireland, of course, in the 
Irish case, we do indeed talk about a liberal market economy, but the social roots for that in the Greek case, I think, were so very different and so much, much weaker. Uh, the Greek state was created in the um, 19th century with an aspiration of uh, liberal political norms and values, uh, but with very little social base for economic liberalism. And I wonder whether that is helping us to explain something of the difference with uh, Ireland on a longer term uh, basis. What is the constituency for economic liberalism in the Greek case? Uh, it has been uh, very limited. We have an economy with very, very few large enterprises, even today, and a plethora of micro, micro uh, firms. Uh, and where is the voice for um, a liberal economic model? Uh, Neoliberalism, order liberalism, not accidental that these are uh, terms with much negative connotation in Greece, not only today, but for many years. So I think the uh, part of the contrast with Ireland may come in terms of uh, economic capacity, in terms of the inheritance of a type of uh, economy. Um, in the pre-independence period, of course, Ireland was uh, part of a British economic model, which was certainly not um, uh, similar to that of uh, Southern Europe or the, or, or the Greek case. I'm very much struck by the political economy, the, the importance of the political economy conditions in Greece, limiting um, competition, limiting a voice for economic liberalism, and the contrast that makes uh, with the EU's um, programs for rescue in the recent debt crisis. In that sense, who chooses the model? Uh, well, in the Greek case, it seemed to be very much an external um, imp an import from abroad, alien, uh, something which was impositional. And I think, again, the contrast with Ireland comes from the point of view that uh, there were different types of crises. In Greece, it was a crisis, a fiscal crisis. It was much more the private banking se uh, sector. And therefore, there's much more scope for Europe to be seen to be impositional, blaming uh, the failings of the Greek state. Uh, in the Irish case, uh, the failings were in the private uh, sector. I think, uh, let me, Spiro, just say two more sentences, if I may. The Greek case, I think, to me, in the context of the European Union, uh, shows very much the incompleteness of the EU uh, today. The European Union has a very heterogeneous uh, 27 member states, not only with different domestic economic models, the political economy uh, approach, but also very contrasting qualities of uh, state institutions, institutions able to deliver public goods. How does the EU then handle that? I think the EU currently lacks the instrumentation, but also lacks the political capital, the legitimacy to be able to manage the Europe, European macroeconomy in such a diverse, heterogeneous uh, fashion. Uh, the Greek crisis, I think, uh, accentuated this problem. 
uh, that they are doing something to us in an impositional uh, alien uh, sense. Again, it's a question of who is choosing the model, what's their accountability, and what's the legitimacy of a model being imposed? And when did Europe become associated with a singular model rather than accommodating a plethora of different state traditions and different political economy uh, traditions? Final uh, comment in terms of what uh, Calypso was uh, saying. I thought uh, it was very important uh, corrective that you're emphasizing that there is much flux, there is change. Uh, but also I thought the most uh, important question she was raising was this sense of uh, there is more agency. And I think that gets to the heart of a long-term cultural pattern in the Greek case, the extent to which the individual citizen believes that he or she can be agents of change, whether that is in wider civil society, VV uh, state institutions and public goods, or whether it's in terms of um, uh, developing change in private uh, sectors. Do we take optimism uh, on the legacies of the recent crisis? Um, of course, there is much more uh, political fluidity, much less loyalty to political parties after the crisis than before. Half of the party system collapsed. Um, and, but there's also been much more mobility. Uh, sadly, in the context of the crisis, uh, hundreds of thousands of Greeks uh, voted with their feet uh, chose mobility and left the country. But I think Calypso is right that as we go forward, that sense of ownership by individuals that they can be agents of change uh, is the crucial variable here, the extent to which Greece has actually changed from its uh, past, uh, I think rests on that particular uh, proposition. So again, uh, thank you to each of you, and no doubt there'll be opportunities to come back and respond to uh, these uh, questions later in the discussion. Back to you, Svera. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Dimitri, for your, in a sense, coming back to the comments uh, made by Calypso, Bridget and George and saying a few more things about the book in general. Could I remind our audience that you can ask questions via the Q&A function on your screen? Uh, we have a trickle of questions coming in, but I'm sure people have had a chance to think a bit more about what's been said, and perhaps they have uh, uh, more questions they'd like to ask. So I do invite you to put your questions in the Q&A and we'll filter them through to the speakers. Before I uh, sort of pick up on some of the questions that are being asked, perhaps I could ask a general question to any of our panelists who wish to answer, because uh, it seems to me that uh, one of the themes that's been discussed so eloquently, both uh, in this afternoon's presentation and in the book, is the relationship between continuity and change. Uh, this is a book which deals with Greece since 1974. And I would be interested to hear what all of you or any of you have to say in response to a question uh, which says or asks, what do you think has been the most significant change in Greece, in Greek politics, in modern Greek politics since 1974 and why?
so that's something that I would like to explore with you as a way of introducing perhaps uh, more themes. A second question revolves around this theme of exceptionalism, which has come up repeatedly in all your presentations in one form or another. And it's an inherent discussion part of, uh, you know, discussing modern Greek, Greek politics. And it seems to me that Kevin almost concluded that on the one hand, um, the exceptionalism uh, stems from some kind of uh, uh, internal uh, relationship between uh, individuals, societies, peoples, actors, policies, institutions, and so on and so forth. But there's a very big external dimension to this. Uh, this is something that uh, I think uh, Bridget brought up as well in her in her remarks as well when discussing the chapter by Kalibas. To what extent is Greek exceptionalism for Greeks really dependent on how they view the outside world and the outside world's impact on them. That there's this constant idea that people are intervening and meddling in our affairs. We're coming up, we've come up to the 200th anniversary of the creation of the Greek state or the Greek war of independence. And this has been the same kind of debate that's been going on ever since then. What is the role of the outsider as an agent for change? So I, I just wondered whether uh, any of you would like to take up the first question on change, what's been the biggest change since 1974? And secondly, whether exceptionalism is really the result of this vision of the outside world, of the system around us, rather than factors which are internal to Greece. I know this is an artificial separation, but I think you, you, you sense what I'm driving at. Um, Dimitri, would you like to kick us off? Thank you very much. Um, regarding the two questions, I think the biggest change since 1974 can be couched uh, by two words. One is, political stability, the other is political participation. Since 1974, there is a stable liberal democracy, um, and that was not granted before 1974. And secondly, uh, gradually there has been an expansion of um, social and political rights, the ushering in the Greek political system of um, the masses and participation of um, people coming from very different social origins through political parties in Greek politics. So I would say these are the two most important uh, changes. Regarding exceptionalism, I usually side with the people who claim that there is much more exceptionalism than we usually think. Um, even today, when we claim that Greece has converged a lot with the rest of the European Union, if you look at Many indicators, um, and I mean standardized indicators available on international um, databases, you will notice that um, on issues on which we tend to be proud of, such as the recent digitalization of the Greek state, we still lag behind. On issues on which um, we are not so proud of, such as the lack of substantive consultation among social partners before policy measures are taken, we lag behind. We are not the only ones lagging behind. There are other countries in Europe in which you have the phenomenon of, um, let's say, weak or bottomless uh, consultation among stakeholders. And there are other countries in which this digitalization has not progressed regarding, for instance, the functioning of central, regional, and local ad administration. However, um, I, 
I would go on for a long time if I had to cite all those instances on which, despite progress, um, this very strong and um, actually very interesting democracy still uh, seems to have a lot of work to do in order to catch up with um, other member states of the European Union. Thank you. Thank you, Dimitri. Calypso, would you like to um, join the conversation on this particular issue? Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, to build on what Dimitri just said, um, part of this political progress, if we can put it that way, since 1974, has both led but also been made possible by you know, a partial overcoming of the wounds and the polarization of the past. Um, and that is something that is kind of with us, you know, to stay. So I think the narratives of the political sphere in Greece is, is, is also very important. And, and actually, I, I wanted to link that to a kind of question I want to throw back to the editors, because we haven't, but Dimitri, you were saying how this is, the book is an invitation to the Greek academic community. But how does the Greek com academic community relate to the media? There is a wonderful chapter in the book by Silianos Papathanasopoulos uh, on the media and on this kind of <coughs> incestuous interplay <laughs> between the media and the owners and politicians that is uh, with us today in Greece changes as oligarchs change, as structures of power change in Greece. That is a continuity. Um, but as you're, you, you know, part of the book itself, that's not aggrandize, you know, academics, but you're part of the conversation. And so how does the book, a book like this, you know, published by OUP in English, you know, makes its way in the Greek kind of public sphere, given a media that is very selective in what it picks from the stories that outsiders or semi-outsiders or Greeks publishing outside or the Greek diaspora or other observers, you know, bring. And indeed, just recently, it, it's, it's really fascinating to see how the media picks and choose from the praises of the outside that you were just stating, whether it's partial on digitalization, for instance, and then kind of forgets the, the, the critiques, right? And, and or depending on where they sit. So I was wondering about that to you both and, and, and in terms of the fate of the book. Um, but I also wanted to pick up on, on exceptionalism to link it to, um, I mean, first of all, to remark that we've all picked up on the kind of this core ambition of the book, the comparativist, the, the banalization of Greek exceptionalism, but I did make the remark that I, there is a Greek exceptionalism in the combination of all the ways in which it's comparative. To pick up on George's, Tbilisi's, you know, many curves for each issue area, we have a different distance um, and isomorphism of Greece. Um, and I think Greece is quite unique in all its comparators, from Westminster to Balkan, to Ireland, to, and to Southern Europe, etc., cetera, um, in, in the kind of plethora of comparators. There's like almost a meta field of com comparativism, of, com of comparativism, as it were, varieties of varieties. Um, 
And I think that carves a kind of uh, um, um, except, exceptionalism if we want to retain a residue of exceptionalism, even though it's not like we have to be attached to that exceptionalism. But one theme that has come back and Kevin also picked up is this theme of the society before the state and yet the state stronger than society. And, and I wanted to throw in the, you know, bringing it back to the COVID moment that Dimitri was talking about. You know, what, what does all this kind of, how does it pan out with the COVID moment? Um, because, I mean, I think you might agree that there's a kind of COVID paradox that we're living through, which is that we're, we're witnessing both the demand and supply for a stronger states and stronger societies. Stronger says to deliver the goods and stronger societies to kind of implement and, 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 and be responsible for this society of care that is necessary. And I'm, I'm just wondering, but this is not just brainstorming, that, you know, whether, how does this feed into this kind of hope for Greek agency? I mean, if this society has this partial you know, the, the, the dependence on the state and yet autonomy, and yet story of, 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 of fierce uh, uh, rebellion and all the rest of it, how does that feed in the state-society relationship um, with this mo COVID moment, this redefinition of state-society relationships around the world? Maybe Greece has some sort of comparative advantage here. Um, okay, so can I, can I just stop you there to try and bring yeah, in uh, uh, both, both, uh, both Bridget and George? Uh, uh, you've raised a lot of interesting questions there, not least the question of, of, of the relationship between uh, media and politics, which is not unique to Greece, but it's an interesting case in Greece as well. The issue of agency um, and the issue of comparators and who the appropriate comparators are, and of course, the relationship between state and society. But could I just go back to my previous question for the time being? Perhaps the other panelists would like to pick up on any of your points and, and discuss them. But Bridget, do you have any sense either of what you would see as the biggest change in terms of Greek politics since 1974, or a view perhaps on exceptionalism and what it means and what it might mean uh, across a variety of different European countries and where Greece might fit into that. So, firstly, on on the mo on the most significant change, I think both I think Greek society should take great strength from the fact that its democracy was stress tested in a way that very few democracies are during the crisis, and it came through, and that's really a mark of a resilient democracy. And I think, given the history of dictatorship in the past, then that for me is a fundamental shift. Now, of course, democracies are never safe, but I really do think there are very few democracies have been stress tested in the way that the Greek in the way Greek democracy was tested in this period. On exceptionalism, so I go back. So I think there is a danger with the exceptionalism, exceptionalism narrative, and that is uh, we are different. And therefore, uh, things can't happen. And I do think it goes back to that issue of agency and relationship to the uh, outside powerful external actors. So, Kevin, you talked about the fact that there would be there was no support. There was no support for liberal economic values in the Greek system. But both Ireland and Greece entered the 1960s as rural agricultural countries. They were not different. 
So the, diff the big difference was the openness to the outside world, not the world to come in to help, to rescue, but rather the world to come in to give the expertise of the capital that was lacking in the domestic economy. In other words, there was a strategic drive for a different political economy. And for me, the question to all of you who know Greece much better than me is what model of political economy can deliver to the Greek people a level of prosperity that they desire? Because no society would want to ever go back to the volatility and the stop start and the public finance crisis. Again, I mean, this should be a watershed for Greece. No society should ever want to experience that again. And so my question is, where is the strategic model and what are the choices that Greece has to make about a model of political economy for the future that is a fit with the world as it is, not the world as they might want it to be, with the EU as it is rather than an EU with very significant inter-regional transfers, which It's slowly piano, piano, there are changes. So for me, that's the big question, I think. Where is that model that will, that will avoid a return to the Eurozone crisis, to the pathologies that led to that, but also the experience of it? What is the model and what are the choices that Greece has? And then where is the capacity both in the state and society to mobilize around that strategic future. Because that for me is what is demanded of the country in this period. No one should want to go back to the pathologies of, I mean, no one should ever want to see a Troika in Athens again. Thank you, Bridget. Uh, of course, any of the comments uh, that have been raised by the panelists now, uh, the other panelists, please feel free to, to respond to if you so wish. Uh, if I could move to George and ask you the, the same question about change since 1974, but perhaps tack on uh, a couple of questions that have come in from the audience and which fit in quite well with what Bridget had just raised in terms of the model of political economy. How do we go forward? Um, we have a question from Kharit Sakalotos and a question from Dimitris Urvanos who ask, generally speaking, the same kind of question. That's about consensus in terms of Greek politics. Would it make a difference if there were more, more coalition governments as the result of a change in the voting system in Greece? Would less veto players in the system allow for the emergence of a consensus that in a way may address some of the questions that Bridget has raised about, you know, how do we move forward on a consolidated plan Uh, with a vision for the future, which gets away from the idea that we're constantly being told to do what, what to do from abroad? Well, uh, in terms of uh, coalitions and uh, consensus, I have been thinking uh, for a long time uh, how lucky we have been that uh, the political uh, competition and uh, electoral politics did not transcend into the government action. Um, going back to Andreas Papandreou, who came with a, sim, with a slogan uh, uh, out of the EU, out of NATO, and then he didn't, he didn't do anything. 
moving to Tsipras, who said, uh, you know, we will take out the memorandums with one article. Uh, essentially, we have been extremely lucky uh, to uh, throw away the, uh, the polarization that comes in the electoral debates and in the electoral uh, competition and get moderate uh, heads of government, both from the right and from the left. Okay, without Tsipras, we may have been with somebody else from Syria, we may have been outside of Europe. And I don't know what we would have uh, had without Mitsotakis in the, as the head of the new democracy. So this is a very uh, successful operation that uh, I don't know how much credit we can have essentially as, as a people. Probably it is a very strong centrist sentiment uh, inside the Greek electorate that influences the politics of both parties and selects the more centrist leaders. Now, <clears throat> Once we go uh, from that to the um, government, would we be better off with coalition governments? Uh, well, one coalition was, in my opinion, a successful one, the center-right one. The Samaras Venizelos government were able to uh, interact with each other in a successful way. Uh, the Tsipras Kamenos um, coalition was not successful, but it was a kind of getting out completely out of the mold, uh, neglecting the right, the left right axis, and moving into the pro anti European axis. And that was the only thing that was uniting them. And as a result, uh, they, I'm, we are lucky that we didn't get out of Europe, but on the other hand, uh, on the left-right axis, we didn't do anything because it was impossible. Thank you, George. Uh, Kevin, remarks. Thanks very much. Um, I would add to the biggest change since 1974, um, accession to the European uh, community, then uh, European Union. And I think Greece is a society in which Europe has played a huge role in a very interactive uh, sense. How can we define Europe without uh, the Greek uh, legacy and the Greek uh, inputs, uh, etc.? But I think um, joining the European uh, com uh, community changed the external dependency. Uh, there's the potential for going beyond uh, victimhood. Uh, many Greeks would talk of uh, modern history being peppered by uh, external intervention. Uh, we might uh, start the story in 1827 with the Battle of Navarino, where the great powers of the day stumbled, stumbled into uh, the Greek um, uh, <clears throat> nation uh, aspiration, independence uh, war. In other words, prior to accession to the European uh, community, uh, there was a legitimate narrative of victimhood, whether it's the uh, civil war and, the, uh, and uh, legacies of external intervention, uh, the Cold War um, 
uh, politics, uh, etc. And then this now connects with Bridget, Bridget's point again about um, why Greece didn't make a stronger strategic choice, why Greece uh, didn't emulate Ireland in, in that case, which she was um, careful not to put it in such a stark uh, terms. The difficulty, of course, was that Europe changed. And uh, we've been referring to some notable statements. Let me uh, refer to uh, George Papandreou's statement of 2010. Greece has a problem, but Greece is not the problem. I think the problem uh, was that uh, his government and uh, his successors lost the, the battle of the narratives in terms of defining what kind of crisis uh, this was. Uh, the pushback to say that it is Greece's problem, isolating it from um, the rest of the uh, governance of the Eurozone, was hugely uh, consequential. Uh, it, um, it narrows the potential uh, solutions. Let me try to pick up, because I know that time is very short, I wanted to pick up on a couple of uh, points. I think uh, Calypso made a very good point about the relationship between academics and the public sphere, the media, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, there is a remarkable legitimation of external expertise as opposed to domestic expertise in the Greek case. Uh, successive governments have set up international committees to advise on pension reform or whatever it might be. Uh, and they are given the legitimacy because they are uh, external academics, external uh, specialists. What we've seen more recently, perhaps in the COVID case, and Calypso referred to uh, Greece doing so well in the COVID uh, case, uh, represents perhaps something of a shift where public opinion has uh, accorded far more respect to independent experts uh, handling the, the COVID crisis in the, in the Greek case. Does that mean the Greek state institutions have somehow um, uh, been reformed and a, a greater capacity to de deliver public goods? No, uh, but it does reflect a strategy of how to crisis manage uh, the pandemic by having um, independent uh, expertise uh, brought into uh, and to be forefront in managing the uh, the crisis. It has uh, diluted some of the partisanship, which has exacerbated public policy making uh, in the Greek case. Uh, final point: Bridget asks why why can't Ireland make a sorry why can't Greece make a strategic choice? Um, good point. I think there are partly domestic answers and the partly European answers. Uh, the domestic answers uh, are to do with a high degree of partisanship, um, political opportunism. Uh, George re referred to Andonis Samaras. Um, big mistake from Andonis Samaras in May 2010, um, not supporting the, uh, the first bailout uh, agreement. Uh, George Papandreou opted uh, not to seek a special parliamentary majority and thought of a referendum uh, perhaps too late. Opportunities 
the consensus were therefore erased and the main opposition party uh, was behaving in a very opportunistic uh, fashion, conditions which I don't think occurred uh, so much in the uh, Irish case. A short-termism, yes. Um, grounds for optimism, uh, we've seen in more recent times the Pisarides uh, Commission and the support of the current government for that Pisarides long-term economic plan of a kind. Uh, as a means, as a new kind of uh, policy making, publishing a new legitimation of expertise for how the country uh, might go forward. So, some grounds for optimism uh, there. Um, but yes, uh, what do we take from this? We take from this uh, that uh, um, Greece has not been able to make fully independent choices. Uh, why? Because of the constraints, uh, the aspirations are out of sync with the capacity. We might have said that in 1821. I think we can say that to some extent in 2021. Uh, and the capacity of the country, whether it's institutional or whether it's in terms of uh, the economy, uh, has been a constraint on uh, developing some different developmental uh, path. Um, Final sentence. I think this discussion has shown how fascinating the Greek case is. Sometimes my fellow foreigners ask me, why did I become interested in Greece? I think for the last 90 minutes, we've had an ample answer of how this Greek case tells us, A, something about European identity and the problems of uh, sharing that. Two, uh, the problems of um, Europe managing um, a heterogeneous uh, system. Uh, Greece, I think, today shows the incompleteness of the EU's uh, project, uh, the limits of Europeanisation. Uh, there are many different questions here. And yes, I would like the conversation to continue for the next 30 minutes, but Spiros is going to stop me from being more coherent and more, um, uh, more lengthy in my res response. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kevin, and thank you for relieving me of the burden of having to sum up uh, both uh, uh, the presentations uh, and also uh, the, the themes uh, that developed during the discussion. We have a lot more questions dealing with uh, the eco the economics of the crisis and what can be do what can we do to 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 push up exports and did we join Euro at the right time or was it correct to join at all? There's questions on foreign policy. There's questions on whether the comparators should not be Sweden and Ireland, but perhaps the countries of the Western Balkans and so on and so forth. The, the, the list is, is endless, uh, but we don't have time to, to discuss those right now, but I'm sure that there'll be future opportunity to touch on all these questions. Before I thank you all, can I just uh, make a little public announcement on behalf of the Hellenic Observatory? Uh, our next event is the 18th Hellenic Observatory Annual Lecture, entitled Migration Crisis and its Impact for Europe. The date is Tuesday, the 22nd of June. The time is 1300 UK time. The speaker is uh, Notis Mitarakis, who is the Minister for Migration and Asylum. And the discussant is Maria Gavunelli, Associate Professor of International Law at the National Capodistrian University of Athens. We really look forward to seeing you there on the 22nd of June to celebrate our, 22nd, uh, our 18th 
annual Hellenic Observatory lecture. In the meantime, uh, please let me thank all the audience for attending today and participating and asking their questions. Uh, but most importantly, let me thank our panelists, uh, Bridget Laffan, Calypso Nicolaidis, and George Sebelis, uh, for taking the time out uh, both to read the book or parts of the book and to present us with their views on it. And of course, I'd like to uh, thank uh, Kevin and Dimitris and congratulate them uh, on the book and for making uh, this uh, panel uh, possible. Uh, thank you all very much. And I look forward to seeing you soon uh, at another such occasion.